This episode of Grievous Guts Girls, filling you in on your favorite digestive bacteria, is brought to you by CCRI's Intro to Micro COVID-19 Distance Learning. Sit back, relax, and welcome to the show. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the second episode of the Grievous Guts Girls, hosted by yours truly, Melissa, and the one and only Kayla. Tonight, we're here with even more of your late-night bacteria broadcasting. Not gonna lie, it feels pretty good to be back. Tell me about it. So, the last time we aired, we were discussing the history portion, that nasty little gram-negative microaerophilic bacteria, Helicobacter pylori, or H. pylori as we'll call it, and basically how it came about and who was responsible for the findings. But this time around, we're gonna get into some real nitty-gritty details. All right, so based on tonight's menu, looks like we're gonna cover some DNA info in the pathogenicity, toxicity of H. pylori. I mean, I know a thing or two about toxic situations, but I digress. Don't worry, this isn't a one-way ticket to Snoozeville. We'll keep it lively for you. Always. Let's start with some genetic info about H. pylori. That 23andMe stuff is really everywhere at this point. (laughs) It really is. And that's sort of what this bit of info relates to. The H. pylori chromosomes have been shown to induce epigenetic changes in their hosts upon infection, leading to chromatin remodeling that may cause long-term effects on host immunity. In addition, H. pylori are not invasive bacteria, but they do colonize in the human stomach's antral region and gastric mucosal surfaces. This is where they actually release pathogenetic proteins that produce cell injury and inflammation. Okay, so that sounds all sorts of built science guy. I mean, gotta love the 90s. But anyway, can you break that down into a simpler explanation? I sure can. So, since the bacteria is not invasive, unlike my mother-in-law, meaning they don't have the tendency to spread or infiltrate and destroy healthy tissue, instead, they're colonizing, which is just the presence of bacteria on a bodily surface, such as skin, mouth, airways, or in this case, the intestines. Gotcha. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but the bacteria is present, but not necessarily going to make you sick, right? Right on the money. I mean, some people have this without ever even knowing, which is not the best thing, you know? According to the WHO or the World Health Organization, H. pylori is a class one human carcinogen. I'm sorry, a carcinogen what now? Carcinogen. It's just a fancy word meaning you can remain infected indefinitely if not treated properly. Luckily, there is a protein-based test to detect this bacteria, allowing for speedy treatment. That makes sense. With that being said, typically the mortality rate is very low, ranging around 2-4%. to But there is potential harm with the type of cell injury and inflammation caused by H. pylori that can definitely result in some serious infections, such as duodenal ulcers, gastroenteritis, antral gastritis, and gastric adenocarcinoma. That's some solid info, if I do say so myself. Moving on. How about the mode of transmission? I know the exact route is unknown, but what do we know about the accusations? Well, it's most likely to occur during childhood, through fecal-to-oral or oral-to-oral contact. 
even during some gastrointestinal tract transit disorders. Transmission may also occur through foodborne, airborne, or waterborne pathways. The survival rate of H. pylori outside the host is unknown, and culturing it in a laboratory is difficult because it needs adequate conditions of desiccation, air supply, and temperature. However, in a cochoid form, it can survive up to one year, like in river water microcosm, where it remains cultural for more than 10 days in four degrees Celsius water. So you're saying that someone can contract this by fecal infested water supplies? I don't think I want to know the answer to my own question. Spare me? I'm sorry, I'm going to give it to you straight. Yes, like a water sewage system in large cities that was not filtered properly, scientists have actually been able to find there to be an agent of dissemination. That is really disgusting. No wonder why so many people have it if it's in the drinking water. And also, all the more reason why I'm going to stick to bottled water. Right? And you gotta remember, the drinking water is not only for hydration consumption, but also what we use to clean fruits and vegetables, and it's used for so many other things, like brushing your teeth. So it only makes sense as to why it's so easily transmittable. As if I wasn't already a paranoid germaphobe. But these back about these bacterial situations, this just got way more complicated for me. I don't trust it. I'll be living in a bubble in no time. Anyway, what do you got for information on the incubation period of Helicobacter pylori? Hmm, that's a great question. So the incubation period is completely unclear since symptoms do not appear until adulthood. And like I mentioned earlier, observable symptoms may never even develop. We call this the silent infection for that exact reason. But if you are going to get symptoms, they would be abdominal pains, heartburn, and nausea, which is most likely to be observed about three to four days after the initial ingestion of the bacteria. Oh, okay. Just like good old Barry Marshall did when he conducted his self-inflicted H. pylori experiment. Yep. I still can't believe that guy's tactics to fame on this one. Well, it did work and got his point across here. Well, that's for sure. Well, guys, that about wraps up today's podcast and episode two of our three-part H. pylori series. You won't want to miss our last and final episode where we'll wrap things up discussing the prophylactics options, drug resistances, and many surveillances to this diagnosis. So make sure to tune in next time with us, the Grievous Gus Girls, and maybe get yourself a nice water filter, though at this point we're all doomed.